I'm Scott Annual, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, it's been a little bit of a while since I've done sort of a standalone podcast episode. Uh, I've been regularly recording my articles on my blog at G3 Ministries, uh, but just returned from a week-long trip in South Africa and had a really good time teaching and interacting with people and, and doing Q&As and those sorts of things. And so I thought, you know, I'll do a standalone ep- episode here uh, for a little while and uh, answer some common questions that people ask when I am teaching or preaching on the subject of corporate worship. Uh, first, just want to let you know about uh, some things that are coming up uh, in case that uh it might interest you to be involved in some of these events. I'll be at ShepCon in March, and so if you're going to be at the Shepherds Conference out at Grace Community Church, I'd love to meet you if you're there. I'll be speaking at the Covenant Baptist Seminary Conference in Louisville, March 23rd through 25th. That's going to be a great conference. The subject is on worship, and so Sam Waldron and uh, many others will be there, and I'll be speaking twice, uh, once on the issue of the Psalms, and then once on the issue of art in worship, how art communicates and how art can be regulated by the Word of God. Uh, speaking of Psalms, recently finished, finally, a book on the Psalms that I've been working on for some time, and uh, you can look for that to come out with G3 Press, uh, hopefully beginning of May. In April, April twenty. And 21st, I'll be in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin for the G3 Expository Workshop. Uh, if you're a pastor and you've not, not been involved in one of these expository workshops, I encourage you to uh, to look at the upcoming workshops. These are excellent workshops. I'll be leading a small group and uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, early May, uh, May 4th through 6th, I'll be speaking at the Church and Family Life Conference in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. Always a great conference focused on the family, but in this case, uh, focused on the glory of God and uh, loving him and enjoying him forever. And so I'll be speaking on how to glorify God and enjoy him through music. And then finally, in uh, towards the end of May, May 23rd through 24th in Junction City, Kansas, uh, we have our next worship workshop, biblical worship workshop. And there are still some seats available for that. This is a workshop for pastors, for church leaders. And uh, this is a wonderful workshop to sort of help pastors think through more biblically how to consider their worship service, how to plan a worship service that is gospel-shaped, but that also is tied into the sermon text for the day. So it's truly a workshop, just like our expository workshops where uh, we we definitely have some sort of presentations that are given uh, as part of that workshop. But then also uh, you'll be given work ahead of time in choosing hymns and scripture passages that follow the flow of the gospel and then also tie into the main thrust and messages of the sermon text for the day. Uh, So exciting things coming up in the spring. I hope to uh, see many of you at some of these events. And as I mentioned, I just returned from a week-long trip in South Africa, really wonderful trip. Uh, was with my good friend David DeBrain. Uh, we've been friends for almost 20 years now, uh, mostly online. He joked that it's not been entirely an online relationship. We have been together at a couple conferences over the years, but obviously the distance uh, has made it a largely an online relationship, but really bonded over issues of conservative Christianity and reverent biblical worship. David is a fantastic, lucid author, uh, writes regularly now for the G3 blog, I encourage you to check out some of his articles there. Uh, but he it was born in South Africa, has been serving there now for over 20 years uh, at a church, 
And then also Tim Cantrell, who's been in South Africa for over 20 years now, uh, is a missionary church planter, uh, pastors now a wonderful church there in Johannesburg as well. Really enjoyed being with those men and encouraged to see uh, many of the believers there, pastors and, and people in the churches, uh, concerned about issues related to culture and worship. And so I had the opportunity of speaking 10 times over the course of a week, uh, preaching in both of their churches, doing seminars over the weekend, uh, two different kind of roundtable lunch Q&As with pastors in the area. Uh, spoke even at a uh, classical Christian homeschool co-op to some of the young people, uh, did a men's breakfast, and so very busy time but fruitful time. And uh, we're excited. I went primarily to meet with these men and meet with other pastors uh, to talk about the possibility of how G3 Ministries can help the believers there in South Africa. And so we're excited to be launching uh, sort of an arm of the G3 Church Network uh, over there. Uh, we'll be uh, announcing some workshops coming up in the days ahead, both expository preaching workshops as well as biblical worship workshops, uh, and then also hopefully a conference in, uh, in the upcoming years there in Johannesburg. So very excited about that. Uh, but a couple really sort of takeaways from that trip that motivated me to do this podcast episode and the first is, you know, the first day I was there uh, after arriving, uh, they took me around kind of see some of the historic sites and learn a little bit about the history of South Africa and particularly the, the, the issues of, of Christianity and culture in South Africa. Of course, I knew some of the history, but uh, learned a lot more detail. And what's really fascinating is to learn about the nature of what occurred during apartheid in South Africa when the uh, the Afrikaner people sort of took control over the government. And these, uh, these white Afrikaners are descendants from Dutch Reformed immigrants uh, who settled in the uh, country uh, really not long after some of the various black tribes from north, northern parts of Africa migrated south. So they all sort of arrived at similar times. There's not a whole lot of like, truly native people, uh, from what I understand, in South Africa. But uh, won't get into all of the complex issues related to apartheid and all of that. But what really struck me in talking, especially to David, who's lived there through uh, various changes and, and really knows the history well, what's fascinating is the the uh, just the providential nature of me being there during this time when discussions of Christian nationalism are so. Uh, hot right now here in the States in particular. Uh, I'm currently reading uh, Stephen Wolf's book, A Case for Christian Nationalism. There's a lot of talk about it, and uh, I think it's a, it's a conversation worth happening. But one of my takeaways from talking to them about what happened uh, with these Dutch Reformed, right, uh, uh, descendants from, from the Dutch Reformed, who, uh, if you know anything about the Dutch and Abraham Kuyper and his influence in Holland, there really was this emphasis toward Christian nationalism where uh, Christianity becomes sort of the dominant, uh, becomes in a way united with the state, uh, and everything comes under control uh, by the church. Of course, this is a very sort of Presbyterian Reformed perspective. Uh, and interestingly, Wolf makes this point in the very opening pages of A Case for Christian Nationalism, where he says that his view on Christian nationalism is essentially Presbyterian. Uh, it struck me very early in the book, and I'm sure we'll have more to say about Christian nationalism in the days to come, um, but it struck me very uh, poignantly at the beginning of the book 
that really what Wolf is proposing is the application of a Presbyterian theology of baptism on the nation. So in other words, for Presbyterians, of course, who baptize their infants as, as children of the covenant, uh, there, is, there is no, in a sense, opt-in then for being a Christian. Now, yes, that child has to persevere and has to show evidences of faith to be considered a, Christi- a Christian, uh, but that child is sort of considered a Christian until the point at which he proves otherwise, until the point at which he opts out of Christianity. And it struck me this is essentially what these Christian Christian nationalist advocates, at least in the vein of of Stephen Wolf, are advocating for a nation where the nation becomes Christian. You are Christian by virtue of being part of the nation until the point at which you prove otherwise, until the point at which you opt out of uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, And it struck me that this is exactly what what happened in South Africa. Uh, These uh, Afrikaner people, very much with the heritage of the Dutch Reformed religion, uh, really sort of instituted Christianity in their schools, in their culture. And that certainly had positive effects upon the culture. Christianity will do that. And we all want that. We all want the positive values, Christian values uh, within the culture. But what it ended up leading to is ultimately uh, sort of a a reaction against that, a nominal Christianity to begin with, where people consider themselves Christians, but of course they're not. They truly have not placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. Uh, and eventually a sort of apathy and, and, and agnosticism and then a, a stark atheism. And that's what we've seen or what the people of South Africa, as David and others explained it to me, uh, in that country. Christian nationalism has been tried. It definitely had positive influences on culture, but it led to spiritual death. Uh, And that's really, I think, the question as we move forward in discussions of Christian nationalism that we need to be asking. Would the institution of Christianity as the dominant political control over a civilization have positive cultural effects? Of course it would. But is that our mission? No, our mission as Christians, our mission as collective churches is to make disciples. And I would argue, and again, much more to say here and, and will in days ahead, days ahead, I would argue that it actually hinders our mission of actually making disciples when we lead people to assume they are already Christian when they haven't actually put their faith in Jesus Christ. So more to say on that, but it was a, it was a stark lesson. Uh, really poignant for me as I'm sort of wrestling through what some like Wolf are saying about Christian nationalism and uh, seeing this kind of played out in a nation where today uh, there's there's uh, a lot of nominal Christianity, a lot of people who think they're Christian, but not true Christianity for sure. Well, I wanted to take uh, some time in the rest of this episode and answer some uh, commonly asked questions and uh, it just reminded me of this because I did some Q&As, again, with the people in the churches after I preached, but also with some pastors in, in roundtable discussions. And interestingly, I was joking with uh, David and Tim, you know, the kinds of questions they were asked were excellent questions and questions that I'm always asked. I wasn't surprised by any of these questions. And so that just goes to show you that these are um, these are common questions that are on people's minds 
and uh, ought to be ought to be addressed. So uh, uh, let's work through a couple of these questions. One common question and one that was asked at one of the churches involves the frequency of Lord's Table celebration. Um, I taught in uh, the two seminars that I did in the two churches, as I often do, that the nature of our worship is communion with God in his presence through Jesus Christ. And therefore, the shape of our service is a, is a covenant renewal ceremony in which we renew ourselves in the gospel through the worship service, revelation, adoration, confession, propitiation, proclamation, dedication, supplication, and then communion being the climax of the service since the table is the most beautiful, public, visible manifestation and representation of the fact that we are welcome in the presence of God through the means that God has provided in the broken body and shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, the service ends with commission. And so the natural question, and I'm glad people ask this because it, it shows that they're tracking with me and, and the biblical argument that I'm making for the nature of worship being communion is that if if communion, if the table is the climax of corporate worship, <clears throat> shouldn't we celebrate it weekly? And so my answer is always a couple of things. Number one, I would never say that a church is in sin if it doesn't celebrate the table weekly. There is not a clear mandate, thou must worship weekly. And so I wouldn't die on that hill. I wouldn't say that a church is in sin if a church doesn't celebrate it weekly. However, uh, A, it seems to be that that was the biblical practice of the early church. They did celebrate the table every time they gathered to the degree that their worship service were, their worship services were called gathering to break bread, the breaking of bread. Uh, was sort of a shorthand for corporate worship of the New Testament churches. <clears throat> so that is the model. Again, we don't have a clear mandate that we must, but it is the model. But then also B, theologically, again, it makes sense that we would celebrate the table weekly uh, because it is this climactic picture that Jesus Christ himself instituted that was handed down then to us by the apostles, the apostle Paul in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as this climactic uh, celebration in the covenant renewal ceremony in which we are sort of renewing our wedding vows with Christ, as I often describe it. Uh, and so it has a formative influence. It has a formative power. The celebration of the table uh, influences us to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and how we ought to be living in light of that reality. And so I think we ought to celebrate it weekly. Um, and we do here at Praise Mill Baptist Church. We've celebrated it weekly for over a year now. And it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, we always know that at the end of the service, there's going to be this climactic celebration of the table. And one response that's often given or question is, well, won't, won't the table become sort of just rote and expected and, and those sorts of things? And my answer to that is, in a sense, yes. In a sense, it will become expected. It will become sort of regular. It will become a habit. But that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Uh, David DeBrain reminded me of a, of a quote by C.S. Lewis talking about the sort of regularity of corporate worship. And he sort of he uses the illustration Lewis does of, of dancing and how if you have to be watching your feet the entire time you're dancing, then you actually can't 
enjoy the dancing. But if you've learned the steps to such a degree that they are just habit, then you're actually able to enter in and enjoy the, the activity. And the same is true for worship. Uh, the, the, the habits that are formed, the expectations that are formed through the regularities of corporate worship, even the table, are actually powerful. They enable us to actually enter into communion with God, to actually worship the Lord, to engage our mind and our affections, to have our knowledge and love for him uh, deepen and grow through the context of the corporate worship service. So it's actually a, a good thing that worship becomes expected and regular and, and habit. But second, I would also point out that <clears throat> this is a good thing for purposes even of, of something like church discipline. Uh, church discipline is a mandate of the New Testament church. And what our goal in church discipline is always reconciliation. Somebody is living in sin, and so we discipline them and p- potentially have to excommunicate them from the church in order that they might be recovered if indeed they are truly a believer. And essentially what we're saying is you're not you're not any longer welcome to the family table. Well, if you only celebrate the table infrequently, <clears throat> then that's not a big deal. Uh, they can still come to the service. We would never bar somebody from coming to a service because we want them to hear the word. But somebody who has been excommunicated from the church, somebody who has been disciplined from the church is removed from the table. And if the table is an expectation and they're not allowed to participate in the table, that has a significant weight to it and is another reason that I think it's a good thing that we ought to be celebrating the table weekly. So again, not going to die on that hill, not going to insist that you're in sin if you don't, but I would urge you to celebrate the table weekly. It's a powerfully formative, uh, God-given, biblically prescribed element of corporate worship and there's value to doing it weekly, just as there's value to doing, you know, to having preaching and singing and scripture reading and prayer. Another common question that is often asked and that was asked at one of the uh, meetings as well is, are there any musical instruments that are unacceptable for corporate worship? Again, a common question and a good question. What I will always try to explain here is that musical instruments are, are tools. They have been designed to do some things well, and then by virtue of their ability to do some things well, like any tool, they can't do other things well. So, you know, illustration I like to use is, can you pound a nail into the wall using a screwdriver? Well, yes, you can. I've done it. But of course, a screwdriver is not designed to do that. So you're actually using that tool in a, in a way not, that it's not designed to be used. And so it's less effective than a tool that was designed to pound a nail into the wall, namely a hammer. And so it, it, if, all, if all you have is a screwdriver, then use a screwdriver. But there's going to be limitations then to what you can do. But if you have a hammer, use a hammer because the hammer was designed to do that. And the same is true with musical instruments. Uh, can you worship in reverence and awe using a kazoo? Well, yes, you can, but there's going to be limitations to what you can do. If that's all you have, maybe do it, although maybe just sing a cappella. Uh, but there's going to be limitations. There, there, are, there are qualities of the nature of the instrument itself, the sounds that it makes, the, the volume that it's capable of, the tone quality of the instrument. 
that enables a particular instrument to do some things well and then other things not so well by virtue of the nature of that instrument. Uh, a flute can can do peace and and restfulness well. Can't do majesty well. Uh, you know, various instruments just by virtue of their design and capabilities do some things well and, and other things not well. So people often ask, well, what about drums? Should be use should we be using drums in corporate worship? Well, again, it's a tool. Can you use drums in worship? Sure. But you're probably not going to use the drums in the way, or you ought not to use the drums in the way that they were designed uh, to, to be used, especially in a sort of smaller instrumental ensemble, uh, because it's going to overpower the singing. Uh, you're not going to be able to hear anything. I mean, it's why in some of these churches where there is a, a dominance of a praise band, they got to put the thing in a cage. And that just shows you there's limitations to this tool that even they recognize. Like you have to, you have to muffle the sound. Whereas, of course, if you have a large orchestra and you have some percussion and it's used in ways that fit within that orchestra, it can be a beautifully fitting thing. And so with any instrument, whether we're talking about guitars or drums or flutes or kazoos or piano or organ, we need to ask the question, what is this instrument designed to do? And, and how should I use it to actually support the singing of the congregation? And you can do that with just about any instrument, but there's going to be limitations if the instrument is not designed to be able to do that. The beauty of an instrument like a piano or an organ is its capability to support congregational singing without overpowering the, the sound of the congregation. And so if you have the capability of using instruments like that that are designed to support congregational singing, you ought and if all you have is, is something else, well, then fine, use it, but know that there's going to be limits. And you can't always use that instrument in the way that it was designed because it actually hinders congregational singing. Another question I'm often asked is related to culture, ethnicity, and race. Uh, what are the differences between these categories? And in particular, and this came up in the South African context where there is a lot of racial tension uh, what do we do when it seems like the music that's being advocated in a particular local church is is actually white music? Uh, it's sort of a, a colonialism that seems to be taking place by the imposition of white music. Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that, A, there is only one race. There is only the human race. Uh, and so even using that term race is illegitimate in discussions like this. Two ethnicity and culture are not the same thing. It would be sin to denigrate a particular ethnicity. What is an ethnicity? Well, it comes from the Greek word ethnos, which is a biblical word. Culture is not a biblical word, but ethnos is. And an ethnicity is a group of people that share a common heritage and genealogy. And so usually, right, similar physical characteristics and those sorts of things, which tend to be what people point out, skin color, facial features, hair texture, and those sorts of things, which actually are very minimal. Uh, they're literally skin deep. What unites a people is a common heritage and a common, uh, a common ancestry in a particular civilization. And it would be sin to denigrate one particular ethnicity over another. That would be what we, what we today call racism, probably better called ethnic partiality. That would be a sin. 
Uh, but culture is not the same as ethnicity. Culture is not a biblical word, but as defined by anthropologists in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, culture is simply the common way a group of people behave. And if culture is the way we behave, which includes our music, our art, our customs, all of these sorts of things, then human behavior is a, a, an outflow, an expression of values. Uh, someone once described culture as religion externalized. Uh, scripture is clear that we ought to judge behavior. We ought to evaluate human behavior to determine whether that human behavior is reflecting, reflective of biblical values or whether it contradicts biblical values. So when we're talking about something like customs, um, certain expectations in a society, the art forms and music of a particular civilization, these are all aspects of human behavior that ought to be evaluated on the basis of whether or not, not these particular human behaviors, these expressions, are consistent with biblical values or not. And then even beyond that, if we're talking about something like corporate worship, whether these particular musical expressions, uh, expressions of value, are suited and fitting for the reverent worship of a holy God. And the fact of the matter is that a civilization that has more gospel influence than another civilization is not surprisingly going to have more that characterizes its culture that would be fitting with Christian values and Christian worship. Uh, if you take two, two cultures, one culture that eats their dead and another culture that does not eat their dead, uh, you're going to expect that that's going to flow out in various practices. Uh, you would expect that a culture that is thoroughly pagan is going to have then cultural expressions within that civilization that are expressions of that paganism. Whereas a civilization where Christianity has dominated for a long period of time is going to, by necessity, ha going to have expressions that are more suited. Now, this doesn't mean that a pagan civilization won't have anything good. Uh, even pagan people still possess the image of God. Even pagan people still have God's common grace. And so even pagan people, you know, recognize sometimes that the world works better when they live in conformity with God's law. Uh, to put it in, in uh, language of, of Greg Bonson, they borrow from the Christian worldview. And so they can sometimes produce worthy art and, and worthy customs and worthy, worthy morality. Um, most civilizations of the world, regardless of how pagan they are, have figured out that it's probably a good idea to outlaw murder. That's common grace. That's borrowing from the Christian worldview. And so you often will find certain aspects of, a, of even a pagan civilization that are suited and, and fittable for, uh, fitting for Christian expression and worship. But the fact of the matter is that Western civilization for a long period of time was influenced by Christian values in the gospel to the degree that not necessarily everyone were believers. They weren't. As I started this episode with, that sometimes actually leads to a sort of nominal Christianity and, and deadness. And that is, I think, what has happened in the West and, and in America in particular. However, the fact that Christianity has influenced Western civilization so much over the centuries has led to the fact that there, there has been more of culture produced within Western civilization that is suitable for Christian expression and Christian worship than perhaps civilizations where those values have not been dominant. So it is actually faulty thinking to say that this is just white colonialism. 
it's not white versus black versus any sort of cultural, you know, cultural expression or ethnicity. It's rather we ought to evaluate various cultural expressions and ask the questions regarding what do these expressions mean? What do these expressions embody? And are these expressions suitable for any Christian uh, participation? Or are they actually expressing things that are contrary to Christian holiness? And in particular, when we're talking about Christian worship, we need to ask, do these expressions embody reverence and awe, the kind of reverence and awe that the Bible commands for corporate worship and the kind of reverence and awe that the Psalms, God-inspired songs, uh, actually model for us and embody. And so we ought to be evaluating not on the basis of particular ethnicity, uh, not on the basis of whether this is white or something else or colonial or whatever. We ought to be evaluating each musical form on the basis of what it means and whether it is suitable for our purposes in corporate worship. Well, I hope this episode has been helpful to you. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. I'd like to invite you to please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. Uh, if you're listening or watching on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, hit the bell so that you're notified when a new episode comes out. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. I hope you can join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. 